Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And here we are, we're coming right to the um, butt end of, of, of our study of, of Herman Melville, the, the study that kind of started this podcast. I know the recent publication or upcoming publication of Melville's poetry um, kind of makes me put an asterisk by that comment, but still, I'm quite happy to um, have completed this. Um, so this episode will be beginning our look. It'll be a, be a two-part uh, little series on The Confidence Man. The Confidence Man uh, was Herman Melville's final novel um, published during his lifetime. He published poetry and he would, of course, write Billy Budd, which wouldn't come out until after he died. But this, this was the end of his, his prose career for all intents and purposes. So The Confidence Man. Uh, it's got a subtitle, His Masquerade. Um, now, this novel, it was published in 1857 on April Fool's Day, which apparently is the day that the, well, it is the day that the, the story takes place. The very first line of the novel is at sunrise on the 1st of April. Um, so, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of art imitating reality. I don't know how it was planned that it would come out on that day, but um, we can presume that the, the, that the year is the same, too. Um, now we're in this novel set entirely on a riverboat in the Mississippi on the way to New Orleans, um, somewhere from the north, and then it travels to the south. I think we don't get too many geographical markers except Cairo is is mentioned. So I don't know how far these riverboats could travel in a day, but we can imagine somewhere up in Illinois, um, and then to the south. <clears throat> that transition from the north to the south is is a bit of a theme in the novel, because. Um, they are heading south to New Orleans, and New Orleans in the 1850s was the center of the domestic slave trade. Uh, as many of you know from your, your history courses, uh, after the American Revolution, uh, slavery started to decline in the north and the border states. Uh, Virginia in particular was transitioning somewhat away from an economy of slavery. Not entirely, of course. It was still one of the major slave states as late as the time of the Civil War. But its economy was undergoing transitions. The tobacco boom had long since passed. And so many slaveholders sold their slaves to feed the, the demand for slaves in the Deep South uh, due to the cotton boom. Um, so the center of slavery kind of moved from Virginia to Mississippi, Alabama, that area, and the, the so-called Black Belt regions. And a lot of this was facilitated by the slave markets in New Orleans. Now, I wouldn't say that's a major theme of the novel, but it kind of overhangs it, and, and it's hard not to think about, um, especially when race does appear from time to time in, in the novel. Racial politics um, are, are a theme here. And that's certainly something Melville has written about previously and, and thought about. So what's the theme of this novel? I, I don't know. I, I am going to kind of try to go through the plot. It's a lot of chapters. It's 40 five chapters and yeah i'll break that up into two parts but still it's a lot of short chapters and i don't know how much the value of doing a kind of a play-by-play -play like i normally do is here um i but let, let me start out and talk about some of the themes of of the novel right now before we get into the into actually what happens in the story because this is the kind of story that it's it's just a day in a life on this riverboat there's actually an implication in the final lines of the novel that this could continue. It's it's really just it just ends. There's there's not much of a plot actually. Um, it's just a bunch of people in a boat 
having conversations and, and doing things. And what they do is not that much. The center of this novel is a confidence man um, who appears in, I don't know how many disguises, at least seven, six or seven different disguises. We can count them. I'll try to, I'll try to keep a count of them as, we, as I go through the, the story. Um, now, much of the second half of the novel, he's just in one disguise called the Cosmopolitan. But in the first half of the novel, he, he changes his dress quite a lot. And he's always scamming people, getting money from them using different methods to get money from people. And this, this over, that's one story that's funny and interesting and, 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 and kind of nice to watch and experience on its own. But there's a deeper theme that Melville's getting at here, and that is the theme of, of truth, uh, the theme of masks, the masks we wear, uh, the theme of honesty. It's talked about in the novel as confidence, charity and confidence. And of course, the confidence man is promoting a worldview based on charity, of course, giving to the poor is one con, right? For at least in this novel, it is not not in general. Giving to the poor is, is uh, of course, a, a generally a good thing. Not something we should criticize. Although I, I do think socialism is is better than charity. Um, but as an individual act, charity is well and good. But certainly, it's also a, a, w- a window for a con a con man to to exploit, right? Um, you know, sympathy. So there's charity and then confidence. And again, of course, the confidence man wants to have a world based on confidence and trust, because if no one trusts one another, the confidence man doesn't have uh, a job. And this is, of course, over, overlapping with the, the nature of America in the 1850s. No longer just people living in their, their villages, people in a market economy, people moving from all over, people from different areas. People um, engaged in business, in commerce, in selling of stock. All of this requires confidence. It all falls apart if there's no confidence, right? The, the stock trade, the, the market economy, currency. If people don't trust one another, it's not going to hold up. It's also a way for confidence men to exploit, of course. But it's, um, it's still need, you need that. You need some degree of, of trust. And so we're in a world that's transitioning to a market economy um, and coming terms with the fact that it's no longer a world in which that trust is based on actual experiences with, with other people have, right? On the village, you trust your neighbor because you know him. He's not going anywhere. If he scams you, you know, he's going to have consequences for that. So there's a degree of trust in these, in the in kind of rural life that don't exist in, in the more mobile, liquid world of the, of the market economy and the market revolution. And that's why Melville puts his novel in a riverboat. Because that's the symbol of the emerging market economy. It's the river boats on the Mississippi that connect the north and the south, the east and the west. You got the Erie Canal, of course, connecting the east and the west. So there's all this context to it, and it's all boiled down into a conversation about the necessity of, of confidence and then the way that a particular confidence man is able to exploit um, a feeling of confidence. Now, just as a story of a, of a, con, of a con man practicing his art is fun, but we also realize that the, the titular con man, confidence man, is not the only schemer, trickster on the boat. There's other people too. So <clears throat> tied to this is, I'd say, a, an argument that one's identity is very flexible and, and we wear masks, right? It's, when I read a story like this, I can't help but think about you know, this idea that there's kind of an authentic, true reality uh, underneath all of our all over our skin, right? An authentic self. 
right? And then a lot of identity politics is based on this, right? That beneath everything, beneath the clothes we wear, um, beneath the way we present ourselves is our true self, right? And, and part of identity politics is the belief that we should be able to then celebrate and display who we are deep down, right? Like I might be married and have kids and present myself as happy. That's the mask I wear, right? Deep down, maybe I'm a, you know, I'm a gay man who would much rather uh, live that authentic gay lifestyle, but I can't because of society, right? So I wear a mask. But the idea is that there's a true self down below that's either suppressed or, or liberated. And I don't think Melville agrees with that. I think Melville thinks there is just masks. And if you keep taking off masks, that's all you get. Is, is a, I guess, a blank slate almost, right? So um, the theory of the self as being kind of a combination of our interactions with others, the masks we wear, our training, our habits, and not really, at the end of the day, uh, you know, some true self underneath is, is something I think Melville would agree with. I, I realize that that's not the most popular view of, of the self out there. A lot of people do hold to the idea that there is a true self underneath all the masks, but... That's not the narrative we're getting in this particular story. So anyway, just to recap, this is a novel about truth. It's about masks. It's about uh, the limits or the necessity of honesty in a market economy. It's about flexible identities. It's about mobility. It is set on a boat, obviously, moving between regions. And it's about the, the, the America coming to terms with being a growing market economy. I think that's the, the heart of what this story is about. As I said, it's broken up into 45 chapters. It's about 250, 270 pages long in the Library of America version. I should probably do th two, three episodes on it, but I'm going, I don't think I need to. And um, I'm kind of, although I love Melville a lot, I'm kind of eager to move on. So I'm just going to do two episodes on, on The Confidence Man before moving to my next series. And I'll talk about what that next series will be uh, when we look at, at, at Billy Budd. But if anyone has any recommendations, let me know. I'm... Um, I think I'm committed to my plan for, for the future. I'll talk about that when we look at, at Billy Budd in a few, in a, in a week or so. So anyways, um, let's just jump into what the story um, gives us. Um, each chapter has a title. I'm not going to give you the title of each chapter because who's going to remember? If you have a copy of this, you can just look them up. Um, so the novel starts with sunrise and it ends with, with darkness. So it's, it's all said in one day. Um, and in chapter one, the confidence man gets on the boat uh, at morning, and he's posing as a mute. So that's, I guess, his first, his first um, dress, his first uh, disguise. And we are warned uh, through a placard, through like a wanted sign, that we are in the presence of, of a con artist. And we are warned that this world is full of con artists, in fact. Quote, as if there had been a theater bill, crowds were gathered around the announcement, and among them a certain Chevaliers, whose eyes it was plain were in the capitals, or at least earnestly seeking sight from them from behind intervening coats. But as for their fingers, they were enveloped in a sort of myth. Throw during a chance interval, one of these Chevaliers somewhat showed his hand in purchasing from another Chevalier, ex officio, ex officio, a peddler of money belts, one of the popular safeguards, while another peddler who was still among versatile chevaliers hawked in the thick of the throng the lives of Mision, the bandits of Ohio, Merle, the pirate of the Mississippi, and the brothers Harp, the thugs of the Green River County in Kentucky, creatures with others of the sort, one 
and all exterminated at the time, for the most part, like the hunted generations of wolves in the same region, leaving comparably few successors. End quote. So there's a lot going on in this little section. In fact, a lot of uh, the passages in this novel are quite thick with, with meaning here. You have all these people in these interchangeable coats. All right. That's the business suit, the, the, the dress, the disguise, the costume of, of the modern American. And here we have then people selling money belts. Money belts, which is something you only need in the presence of con men and pickpockets and, and thieves. And then they, we get in the, the, the reason for this is there's this population of bandits and con artists and thieves that exploit the migrations of people along the Mississippi. And they have names, specific names, but they have been eradicated. They've been suppressed in part like the wolves of the same region, another thief uh, of, expand, of the expanding American uh, economy. Uh, I, I um, kind of uh, advocated this book several times on this podcast, but once again, I have to tell you to do read Vicious, a book called uh, with a subtext subtitle Wolves in America or Wolves and Man in America. One of the best books I've ever read on environmental history, particularly on the uh, American attitude towards the wolf. <clears throat> so that is uh, how it opens. And then right away, the, the confidence man puts up his own kind of, um, he writes his own sign that says, charity thinketh no evil. And he makes other statements about charity. Charity believeth in all things. Charity endureth all things. Charity never faileth. So here's the contrast right away. We have the contrast between the, the confidence man advocating a culture of trust and confidence, which of course is the foundation on which he can perform his art. And then the the overall suspicion of one's neighbors represented by the money belt. We also get a contrast with the barber. Now, the barber is going to come into the story at the very end of, of the tale, and it's going to be the climax, such as it is, of the story. But the barber shop on the on the riverboat, and this riverboat has a little barber shop on it for the gentleman to use. And on there is a sign that says no trust. So he is not going to trust. He's not going to have any faith in, in others. And this triggers our, our con man, our confidence man. Okay, um, I spent a lot of time on chapter one, but hopefully the rest can go a little bit quicker. Um, in chapter two, we're given a general discussion about the stranger, and it dominates the chapter, um, which is a bit strange. Why in a community of strangers would any one stranger be highlighted? If you're a con man, I guess that'd be a bad thing for you. Uh, maybe on the one hand, you know, you want to be noticed because you want people to come to you and talk to you. But if you're noticed too much, people are going to talk about you. But that's... Um, you know, that's the discussion of who this, this, this character is. But we're reminded of just how diverse and mixed up American society was becoming in the middle of the 19th century as everyone tries to guess what his profession is, his career. And at one point, we actually get a list of all the different ethnicities um, and cultures and language groups and, and people from different countries that were populating in America at the time. And it was like a half a page. Um, in fact, Melville here directly, the narrator, directly compares the population on the riverboat to Chaucer. Uh, to Chaucer's Canterbury Pilgrims. And certainly I think it's worthwhile to, to try to compare those texts. Unfortunately, I don't know what to say about the Canterbury Tales uh, to a degree to compare, but um, other people have done that, made that comparison. Uh, but the diversity of the people on the riverboat is highlighted. It's on page 848 of the Library of America version, if you have this one. Um, so um, in chapter three, enter a, quote, grotesque Negro cripple. That's the character. This is the second 
persona of the confidence man, uh, the second of his disguises. Uh, so a man with a wooden leg accuses the Negro of being an imposter because he can't prove his identity with, with any papers. And I, I think there's not, there, like race is a theme in this novel, but it's not the, the theme, especially in this early chapters. Um, they're, of course, heading to the slave market. You have a unattached black man in an age of slavery. Um, <clears throat> now, this is set, I think, yeah, I think it's set after the Dred Scott decision. Um, let me quick try to look that up. The Dred Scott decision, of course, said that, what's the date? In 1857, the same year. Wow. Um, so the Dred Scott decision, as you may remember, came from the fact that a, a, a slave owner brought his slave to Wisconsin. Um, and when they left, the slave then, well, he, he claimed not to be a slave at that point. He said, once I'm in a free state, I, I can sue for my freedom. I have a right to be free. That You can't have slaves in a, in a free state. So by bringing me to Wisconsin, he essentially freed me. Um, and... <clears throat> And he challenged his captivity in the courts. And eventually his, his case was turned away because as a black man, he couldn't sue in court was the decision. But also, I think they also decided that, you know, property rights extended into these, you know, beyond um, beyond just the South, you know. So he had a right to, you know, he was still a slave and he was in a free state. That was the decision. And so you here you have in a in Illinois, right, on a river, what a place going to a, 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 the slave south, an unattached black man, and then you got someone questioning his authenticity, proving his identity, which of course I imagine was very much part of life for African Americans uh, who were happened to be free uh, in in this period of time, right? We know of cases of people who got kidnapped and, and put back into slavery. The assumption was a black man was a slave unless he could prove his his freedom. Um, <clears throat> So in a way, this isn't the best uh, con man disguise. Um, now, we also got to remember that you have a phenomenon in 19th century America, very popular, popular culture, that of the minstrel show in which you have white people posing as black men. And Melville directly talks about these in this, in this novel uh, in respect to this persona of our, of our con man. Now, he starts to get pennies from people. So, actually, we, we see kind of the, the scam get bigger and bigger over the course of the novel. It starts out with just, uh, you know, pennies, and it moves up into $10, $20, and, and even more over the course of the story. Right now, it's just pennies. He's just pretending to be a beggar, essentially posing as a beggar, as a man in need, a cripple who needs money. And he gets a little pennies. Um, now, there's a discussion here between the wooded-legged man, the one who doesn't believe this man, this... Uh, Negro cripple, and then a Methodist minister, and basically the question is, should these beggars be believed? And the black man condemns the the wooden-legged man for a lack of confidence, and he also condemns the whole, basically the whole boat for being full of people who lack confidence. Um, and the Methodist minister is kind of the good guy here from the con man's point of view because he does believe basically we should trust the, the suffering of these people. We shouldn't be skeptical and cynical. Um, now, a merchant does meet him and gives him some money and in doing so drops his business card, which the con confidence man picks up. Uh, and he'll then use this in his next persona to kind of build up a conversation with this merchant. So that brings us to chapter four, when that's exactly what happens. The con man now re-enters in his third disguise, 
now he's the man with the long weed in his hat. Um, we're going to find out what that exactly means later on when we get his, his full story. Of course, all the stories are, there's no truth behind any of these personas. Uh, but he's got, they're all fairly fleshed out, or at least some of them are. So this man with the weed on his hat, it's, it's kind of funny from a, a, for a modern reader to read, but the, the man with the weed in his hat. But um, <clears throat> he, you know, it, it's like a, you know, some symbol of, actually, it's a symbol of mourning, I'll just say that. And, and we learn a little bit about his persona later on. He goes by the name of Mr. John Ringman, and he's, he runs into that merchant, the one who gave money to the beggar, and basically starts up a conversation. He's able to use the business card as a foundation for this conversation. And he says, well, we're good friends. Don't you remember me? Blah, blah, blah. And of course, a businessman who maybe meets many people doesn't really remember everyone and is, of course, if he's fairly trusting, fairly open-minded, is going to assume that this person is not lying to them. So eventually, he's able to convince him that they know each other. And, you know, this would be an interesting experiment, actually. I, I, I don't, I'm sure it's been done by some psychiatrist. And if anyone knows how these studies have been done, I'd love to know. You know, if, if you walk up to a stranger and claim to know them, and pretend to be long lost friends. You know, how how often do people kind of believe that and go with that? Because I'm, I'm, there's people, that, this even happened to me just on Facebook, right? Where someone friends me on Facebook and claim, you know, says we were good friends in high school or junior high or something. And, you know, maybe the name's a little bit familiar, but I don't really remember this person very much. And I don't have, it's like a vague recollection of someone. And maybe some people have better memories than, than I do, I guess. But, you know, this happens to me um, quite often. Um, and then, you know, then I have to look it up and I look up in an old yearbook. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember this person now or I see the face. But sometimes it's a little bit blurry, you know. And, you know, anyways, I, I just think it'd be an interesting experiment to see how often this, this actually works on people. Um, so Ringman goes and he convinces him that they know each other. He tells the story of his suffering, which is going to we're going to get told back to us in a later chapter. And he gets actually money from the merchant, whose name is Roberts. So now the line here between the con man and others is blurred because Roberts, if not a con man, he's a bit borderline. He is trying to push a stock scam on other people too. So. You know, Melville really doesn't want to say the confidence man is the only kind of suspicious character on this boat. Everyone is kind of, not maybe not everyone, but most of these people are running a game of some sort. And one of these is this, is the selling of stock, right? I think ultimately Melville wants to say the entire American economy is kind of based on fraud and con artists. Um, so chapter five, the man with the weed uh, talks to a man who's sitting right in his own business reading Tacitus. And this triggers the con man. Now, the confidence man is going to be triggered in whatever persona he is on this issue of cynicism. And so what he hates about Tacitus, the Roman historian and writer who, you know, who reads that? Uh, I haven't. But apparently, according to the confidence man, Tacitus, well, here he's the man with the weed. But, you know, don't, you know, Tacitus teaches us to be cynical and not to have confidence in others in this um, really, really upsets him. Quote, trust me, now young man, perhaps you think that Tacitus, like me, is only melancholy, but he's more, he's ugly. A vast difference, young sir, between the melancholy view and the ugly. One may show the world still beautiful, not so the other. The one may be contemptible with benevolence, or compatible with benevolence, the other not. The one may deepen insight, the other shallows it. Drop Tacitus. 
Phrenologically, my young man, you would have seemed to have a well-developed head, enlarged, and cribbed only with the ugly view, the Tacitus view. Your large brain, like your large ox in the contracted field, will but starve the more. Don't dream, as some of your students may, that by taking the same ugly view, the deeper meaning of the deeper books will so alone become revealed to you. Drop Tacitus. His subtlety is falsity. To him, the double refined anatomy is human nature. It's well applied, the scripture says. There is a subtle man, and the same is deceived. Drop Tacitus. Come now, let's throw the book overboard. So anyways, this is the common thing that happens in this story, is the, the kind of the triggering of, of, of our main character by... By just a, someone who doesn't seem to have confidence in, in others, who, do, who doesn't have confidence. It's not even doctor talked about his confidence in others. Confidence itself is is the word that gets binded about. Charity and confidence, again and again, is the conversation in this novel. Um, chapter six, then, the man appears in a new disguise. Now he's a man with a, a gray coat and a white tie. And he immediately talks to the wooden-legged man about the black man. Now, he still doesn't trust the black man, but the black man has, of course, disappeared, and and no one really knows where he is. That's, of course, the nature of the story, and it's on these riverboats, there's stops, right? People get on, get off. I don't know how many stops there would be in a single day. I assume there's, you know, a handful. Um, yeah, people disappear, right? You don't see them for, in an in a environment like this. Trains can do the same thing now. Like you could tell the story on a train, maybe, and, and have the same kind of fun. In fact, there's a wonderful little Chinese novel called Shanghai Express, I think, which which kind of plays with identity and masks and, and things like that in a very liquid world of a of, of a of a train. Um, but he's talking to this wooden-legged man, and the question is, can a white man play a Negro? Like, if if he's a con man, you know, well. It can't work because a white man can't play play a black man is what essentially the the con confidence man is saying. But the man with the wooden leg turns around and says, "Well, what about the minstrel show?" And that's you know here we got Melville directly pointing out that there is this phenomenon of of the minstrel show. It's an important moment. Um, where is it? Yeah, and they talk all about these. Um, you can still see kind of old movie stills of minstrel shows on like YouTube. Uh, there's of course uh, there's a well documented cultural form. Many people have written about it, so you can look at Constant Works book on American humor, for instance, as a, for one place on on the impact of the minstrel show on American pop culture and particular humor. So, but thanks to this conversation he has with the, the, the minister, the con man gets a donation from the Methodist minister for an orphan asylum that he claims to be supporting. Um, so what's that, our fourth disguise already? In chapter seven, we get a, a fifth disguise where he appears, um, no, no, it's still, the, he still is the man in the gray. Um, but there's a, another man called the gentleman with the gold sleeve buttons, and he's introduced. Um, a lot of characters here don't have names or just described how they look. Of course, you know, in a world, again, a world like the riverboat where people come and go, you identify people by distinguishing characteristics, not necessarily their names. So at the start of this chapter, the narrator goes on to a long conversation about trust and, and confidence. And that's one of a few times the narrator does that, where he steps aside and, and talks to us directly about these, these themes of the novel. But meanwhile, the man in gray continues his scam by targeting this man with the gold sleeve buttons. 
And so the con man is offering up actually a pretty interesting idea, and that is the ideal of a universal kind of charity. He calls it the world charity. And here he's building off the idea of a world's fair. He says, if we have world's fairs, why not have a world's charity? And he's kind of to collect money from that. Um, now, I would say this universal ideal of charity is essentially socialism, right? An instituted type of, of charity where we ensure that everyone's basic needs are, are met. Um, and this kind of liberates us then from even having to be charitable. I don't think that's quite what he, he means, but he actually has this idea of a, of, a, of a universal society that would engage in charity, and that's what he's trying to raise money for. Quote, the world's charity is to be a society whose members shall comprise deputies from every charity and mission extant. The one objective of the society will be the methodization of the world's benevolence, to which end the present system of voluntary and promiscuous contribution is to be done away. And the society is to be empowered by the various governments to levy annually one grand benevolence task upon all of mankind, as in Augustus Caesar's time, end quote. So I guess it actually is sort of kind of sort of socialism, right? So... Um, now, again, I don't think if, if there's such a socialism, the con man has no, or at least he loses some of his ability to, to make money. So I don't know if he's serious about it, but um, really interesting here. I'm reminded, of course, of uh, The Soul of Man Under Socialism by Oscar Wilde, which makes the same contrast between charity and socialism, advocating socialism instead of this uh, charity. So, Yeah. Check out this chapter and, and read what he has to say. Tell me what you think. Is this uh, a type of a socialism that Melville is advocating here through his characters? Um, so chapter eight is called Charitable Lady, where the con man now gets $20 from this lady by claiming that no one will trust him and no one has confidence in him. And she quickly hands over some of her savings. Um, in chapter nine, we get yet another disguise of the con man. So now we're up to... At five. Um, this time posing as the head of the Black Rapids Coal Company. So we get a very interesting turn where the confidence man uses his arguments to talk about the lack of trust in the business community, which of course now posing as the head of a corporation, he's concerning about confidence in respect to the selling of stock, to getting people to invest, loaning money to businesses or, or things like that. And again, as, as the economy becomes more national we got a market economy where people have to make deals across hundreds of miles by telegraph without confidence how can this economy function right and that's exactly the point he's talking about here the lack of trust in the business community means the economy really can't function in this way he eventually uh, manages to get money from people interested in investing in a developing city called new jerusalem now obviously most stock sales didn't take place this way, where a guy would just walk around, you know, on a riverboat soliciting donations or investments from random people, right? But in a sense, what is the, a public corporation if not that at large, right? A company saying, trust us, give us your money, we'll keep it safe, we'll try to turn you a profit. We'll, you know, if we can, in the future, we'll give you a profit, you know, that's... That's what it is. There's a lot of trust involved. If, if, if we have a totally cynical worldview or we lack, I guess you could say the law would fit in, right? You have government agencies regulating this stuff now. But that wasn't the case in the 19th century. It was a lot more freewheeling. 
So we also got this interesting this idea of developing a new city, in this case called Jerusalem. Boosting cities was not an uncommon thing. Chicago in, you know, kind of had a lot of its growth due to the fact that it was being boosted by people who wanted to invest in the city. Essentially what happened is a city was you know, planned out and then people tried to you know, encourage investment in the city, saying this is going to be the next best thing. And, and sometimes it worked out, sometimes it didn't. So reread uh, William Cronin's book on Chicago for some history of, of how boosting, boosterism led to the growth of that city. Um, in the next chapter, chapter 10, we got the boat's cabin. He's in the boat's cabin and the confidence man targets Roberts, the merchant, uh, who now wants to invest in the company, having heard about it. And the con man praises him for his confidence, of course. So. Um, you know, Roberts has been trusting throughout most of the story, actually. And in the next chapter, chapter 11, the two talk about the suffering of the people on the ship. Um, now, all the people they talk about are the con man, of course. And the con man then plays devil's advocate, saying that, you know, that maybe really what's going on here is, is pity, meaning one perceives suffering in the other rather than real suffering. Which, of course, again, if you have the belief in the confidence, someone is suffering, someone appears to be suffering, you assume they're suffering. Um, the skeptic, the cynic, will say they're not really suffering, they're just faking it or whatever, right? Um, but here the con man plays a bit of a devil's advocate on that and says, you know, maybe there's actually this, just this general pity that people have, which allows, you know, people to exacerbate or ex exaggerate, I mean, the suffering that people experience. And this leads in chapter 12, the man, Roberts, to go into a story of the, who he calls the unfortunate man, who is the con man himself in the persona of the man with the weed. And we get the story of his wife, um, which really wasn't talked about before, but we learn why he's got the weed in his hat, which is a sign of mourning. And so, he, so he's basically just giving the story back to the person who he heard it from originally, which is kind of funny. But the man's wife is named Goneril. And he suffered greatly on her account, even being eventually sent to a lunatic asylum. And, and eventually she died, and that's why he's in mourning. And it's a whole tragic story. And the point being here, like, how can you not hear this story and assume that this is true suffering? How can you um, belittle it as just pity, subjective pity? Also, we're reminded, of course, of the masks of married couples. Um, if anyone out there is married, you probably know to some degree, um, you know, you have to wear masks to, to sustain a marriage, right? You can't always be 100% honest. Um, you are different with your partner than you are maybe at work or even among kids. It's just part of life. And if you don't agree with me, I mean, if you believe everyone is deep down authentic, you know, then, then I guess you have confidence. Good for you. You'd be, you'd be a hero of this story. But I'm, I guess I'm more of a cynic in this degree. I do think that there's... Um, masks we all 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 wear. Um, oh, already chapter thirteen. Um, the the two men continue to talk and drink together, and we actually get a question that the question comes up of whether drink aids in confidence, and, and we actually get the quoting of the the statement in vino veritas, which is kind of fun. Um, now, in chapter fourteen, the narrator takes over briefly to give comment on all this. And he points out that 
inconsistencies like the one uh, observed here, like we see roles a bit shifting among these characters. We see the impact of alcohol on how people perceive and, and argue things. And he, the narrator just says, like, don't worry. This is not uncommon in real life. And fiction is here to convey reality to a degree. And a lot of what the narrator does in this novel, especially in the second half, is to step in and talk about the line between fiction and reality. And here the narrator is telling us that, that, the, the, that the story here is true to life, right? Um, and inconsistencies are just part of, of one's existence. And we shouldn't uh, be too bothered by that, right? If you're looking for characters who are never contradictory or pure, who always act the same way and don't have conflict, that don't wear masks from time to time, we're not really getting reality. So, um, yeah, I think actually these, I'd have to take a closer look, but I think these narrator interludes kind of break up the story a little bit. They almost work as... as um, placeholders as we move to kind of a different set piece. And that's all this novel really is, is a handful of set pieces and conversations. So um, in chapter 15, we begin a new study of sorts as the confidence man goes to talk to the miser on board the boat. And the miser is coughing. He seems to have some kind of illness. And the confidence man gives him some drink and asks him for his confidence in, in payment. The miser, of course, is cynical. But the con man insists on him investing $100 into his business. He also says that to solve his cough, he better, he, he's going to mention the medicine that his friend has, which is called the Ambelastic Reinvigorator. Now, obviously, these, are, these were common in the mid-19th century, like the snake oil salespeople, the fake medicines, the whatever people trying to sell some kind of medicine off. Homeopathy got its start sometime in the 19th century. So the con man... Um, says, you know, he says, for your cough, you know, get the ambelastic reinvigorator. That's going to come up later on in the story when the con man comes back as an herb salesman who's trying to try to sell medicine. But his main interest here is trying to get this $100 investment from this guy. He says, you got to have confidence in me. He's still posing as the, you know, the head of this company. He says he promises a triple return on investment if he invests in the business. And he manages to get the money in the form of gold from, from the miser. So he's able to even convince the miser. How? By promising him a, a threefold um, expansion of his money. Um, so the con man then comes back as a new person. I think we're at our sixth um, version of this character as the herb doctor. Uh, he meets... A man called the unparticipating man promising to cure his illness with this medicine he has obviously now we got the snake oil salesman character he eventually talks the man into buying the herbal medicine despite not giving him a promise of the cure and they have to go back to the arguments about confidence saying you know this medicine should cure you but i can't give you a promise i can't give you a guarantee you just have to have confidence that medicine helps make you better um which, of course, some medicine seems to work this way, right? Placebo effects um, seem to be demonstrable in, you know, in medicine. I don't really know the studies, but I've heard that placebo effect is a real thing. So chapter 17, the herb doctor is now trying to sell his Samaritan pain dissuader. And he's going around trying to sell this stuff on board the boat. <clears throat> he gets his first serious challenge, though, in this chapter from the man from Carolina. 
who punches him, calling him a trickster. And this does not, though, slow down his effort to try to sell the stuff. Now, some of the more cynical characters in the novel, we got the man from Carolina and the Missourian we're going to talk about later on. They're Southerners, and I, I, th I wonder if, if Melville's trying to make a point about the, about the South. I, I'm not sure. Um, so now people are starting to talk. This is Chapter 18. People are starting to talk about the herb doctor his, and his identity and who he is. Um, one even at one point calls him a Jesuit kind of imposter or some kind of Jesuit schemer. In the mid nineteenth century, if you don't know the kind of the idea of the Jesuits as an international conspiracy, as, you know, consp one of the early conspiracy theories was about the Jesuits. Right? Uh, they were a global order. They had their feet in a lot of different societies. They ran a lot of institutions. So it was easy to point them out as kind of one of the a conspiracy. Um, and so he says, "Well, maybe he's a Jesuit," um, but. Um, you know, the con man continues to try to peddle his good and his worldview, advocating confidence despite skepticism growing on the ship about who he is. Um, now, in Chapter 19, we get a really interesting moment where the con man seems to meet another confidence man. Uh, not quite, though. I, I don't know. Uh, but the, the man's a soldier. The soldier has an injury and he's seeking help. And he tells people it's a war injury in order to get support. But it's not. It's actually... He got the injury somewhere else. So he's not, he's truly injured. But instead of saying he was injured, I don't know, falling down the steps or some stupid thing like that, he says he got a war injury. This builds up support for, for him, right? And I think that probably happens a fair, fairly often with people who really have true injuries, but they change the story in order to build up sympathy for their case. The herb doctor, herb doctor promises to be able to give the soldier a fix to his leg by, he claims to be some kind of bone setter, but instead of setting his bone, obviously he probably can't do that, but he gives him like the medicine, There's a few boxes of his treatment. And the soldier, the soldier of fortune um, buys the, the medicine, hoping it will improve him. So he gets conned, despite being a bit of a con artist himself. In chapter 20, the miser asks about the company president, the, the coal mine company, the one who, you know, he, he gave $100 to before. The herb doctor claims, you know, he kind of reinforces this idea. He's, you know, the con man reinforces the idea in the miser saying, you know, I invested in him and I got triple my money back. So it kind of confirms what the miser was anxious about. So the herb doctor says that that man has left the boat, though. But, you know, don't be afraid. You're going to get your money back triple. Now, the miser still has his cough, but he convinces the, the miser to buy some of his medicine for his cough. And the miser tries to use some bad currency to buy it because he doesn't want to spend his real money. And there's a negotiation. And so now the con man has met some people who are trying to con him in various ways or who have elements of, of, of the ability to exploit confidence of their own. And I, I think that's where this novel starts to move into a different level, where it's not so much about just the machinations of one confidence man, but it's really about the universality of, of the schemer. So in chapter 21, we're introduced to the most challenging character for our confidence man, and that is the Missourian. He's a total cynic. He claims the medicine can't be good because it's based on nature, and nature is vile. And what's his evidence that nature is vile and horrible? It's that a flood destroyed his plantation at some point. Um, and they discuss the virtues of nature 
of course, the con man advocating trust in nature, and, and he's a herb doctor, right? So he has to say nature's good, right? Uh, my medicine is natural, and that makes it good. Uh, eventually, though, uh, the con man leaves. So in chapter 22, the confidence man comes back dressed up as a man advocating a philosophical intelligence office. And he tries to, really what he's trying to do, though, is sell labor in the form of boys. I guess indentured servants, maybe slaves. That's not clear to me. I mean, the Missourian would be in a slave state, so he'd be able to sell slaves. Um, actually, I think where they are, one bank is slave. It's in Missouri, and the other bank is Illinois, which would have been a free state, um, just geographically where they're located. I should have mentioned that before. But anyways, he, he's trying to sell them these boys, and the Missourian, who mistrusts all nature, instead wants to run his business basically with just machines. And, and we get this very interesting conversation about technology. Um, and Melville's always pretty good on talking about <clears throat> technology, and he doesn't trust people. He says, look you, as I told that cousin... German of yours, the herb doctor. I'm on my on the road to get me some sort of machine to do my work. Machines for me. My cinder mill does not steal my cider. My mowing machine, it does not lay a bed of mornings. My corn husker does not even give me insolence. No, cider mill, mowing machine, corn husker, all faithfully attended to by the business. Disinterested too. No board, no wages, yet doing good all their long lives, shining examples that virtue is its own reward. The only practical Christians I know. Very, um, very fascinating. Um, so the chapter, though, ends with, but so, oh, first, somehow the con man does convince the Missourian to purchase one of the boys that he's selling through this philosophical intelligence office scheme. The chapter ends, though, with a revisiting of the importance of confidence to the workings of the, of the modern economy and, and just the world, the way the world functions. Quote, thank you. The confidence is the indispensable basis of all sorts of business transactions. Without a commerce between man and man, as between country and country, would like a watch run down and stop. And now, supposing that against the present expectations, a lad should, after all, invent some little undesirable trait. Do not, respectfully, sir, rashly dismiss him, but have patience. Have confidence. End quote. So, um... <clears throat> Yeah, that's a, that's a good place to leave off. It's about halfway through through the story. Um, so we've seen most of the confidence man's personas. We've seen the main theme of, of the tale, which is um, masks, shifting identities, and the problem of trust in a world in which you don't know people. Uh, that's what I think this novel ultimately is about. Um, so I'm going to leave it at that. Um, in the next episode, I'll, I'll read the final... Uh, 22, 23 chapters of The Confidence Man and give my final thoughts about the novel. So if you're reading along, uh, finish up The Confidence Man. Um, leave your thoughts about the novel um, below uh, or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I'll have a lot more to say about The Confidence Man in, next time I, I record. So thanks as always for, for listening.